The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Well, Good morning today. I've got a couple of very interesting guests with us today. We all remember the search for the Green River Killer. That was the name for the person who was killing dozens of women in Washington in the 80s. This killer, Gary Ridgway, he was caught and confessed. Gary Leon Ridgway was arrested in 2001 and convicted of killing 48 women and girls, many who were alleged to be prostitutes. He earned his name from the first five victims who were found in the Green River area in King County, Washington, but he was spared the death penalty. As part of a plea bargain, he agreed to disclose the locations of the women who are still missing. He's now serving life in prison without parole. But there was another victim besides the women who died at the hands of Gary Ridgway. A man from Oregon traveling through San Diego area had the unfortunate experience of his vehicle breaking down. And a San Diego officer, police officer, stopped by and talked to him and wrote an incident report. Unfortunately, the incident report identified this man with the broken-down car as matching the description of the Green River Killer. Now, granted, this man probably did a lo- resemble him a little bit, but that man was Sam Walters. Sam is here with us today. Two weeks later, Sam was arrested for attempted murder, kidnapping, robbery, and assault of a prostitute, a completely unrelated case, and identified as a suspect who was on the run for the Green River murders. Sam's going to tell you more about this. Finally, Sam, with the assistance of private investigator Mike Kiger from Oregon, is attempting to clear the label that has dogged him for almost 25 years. Let me tell you just a little bit about Sam. He goes by Gleisty, Sam Gleisty Waters. He's a factory-trained master technician for Honda Autos and motorcycles, including all power products. Um, he was he had uh, achieved being in a fairly high uh, position as a corporate marketing manager for the Asbury Group Auto Group in Portland, Oregon. Well, then an untimely background check uncovered some problems that he'd had in his past uh, as a result of this uh, arrest that he had, where they identified him as the Green River Killer. So 1989, when this happened, he was a 35-year-old mechanic living in Coos Bay, Oregon, just traveling in San Diego, okay? He's been married for 40 years. He's the father of two sons, 
And in spite of the obstacles he's encountered over the years, and in spite of what's been hanging over his head over this horrible case, he's owned his company for 11 years. His auto dealership, All Star Dealer LLC in Portland, is set up to help people to sell used vehicles to needy people where he provides a free warranty to 95% of all the vehicles he sells. And he has some other plans that, to help people because of what he's been through. Good morning, Sam. Good morning. Thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you for uh, having me on, Frankie. Francie, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, okay, and we also have Mike Kiger, the private investigator. Mike decided to pursue a career in private investigation after completing his service in the United States Navy. He now has 30 years, or over 30 years, under his belt. He conducts all kinds of investigations, including uh, complex adoptions, uh, intellectual property investigations involving anti-privacy and counterfeit products, uh, federal government background investigations, and financial investigations, both in domestic and international areas where the victim's losses exceed six figures. He's a licensed private investigator in the state of Oregon. He has an AA in criminal justice and a bachelor's in political science. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Francie. Good morning, Sam. Good morning. So this is such such a horrible story, Sam. Let's Let's start with you. Why don't you tell us how when you were traveling from Oregon to San Diego, how this started. Well, first, uh, Francie, I'd like to introduce just the uh, individuals that assisted me with the writing of this book. Uh, the book title is Wrongly Accused, uh, The Glusty Water Story. And uh, there's approximately eight individuals involved with this book uh, over a period of uh, 23 years uh, as I had been planning to, uh, to, to present the book. Um, the, uh, I am the author uh, of the book, uh, Dr. Steve Burdenberg uh, is my researcher and ghostwriter. Linda Jackson uh, is my editor. Uh, Mike Kiger is the investigation uh, head of the investigation team. Uh, an investigator by the name of John Atwell um, out of the San Diego area from 1989 to 1993, which had discovered uh, some very, very exciting uh, documentation and facts uh, related to the case. Okay. Um, Elizabeth, uh, which I'm not going to use her last name because I don't have permission at this point, uh, was very uh, was very instrumental in uh, making uh, one of the first contact calls to the uh, Helen Toy residents here in the last uh, last year or so. Uh, now, she's we, should, we should say, Sam, that Helen Toy was the yeah, woman that you're accused of assaulting. Right, exactly. She's okay. the uh, she's the party uh, that uh, had made the accusation that uh, that I had assaulted her. Um, and then there's uh, Gene and Dale of JNM. Uh, it's ariinvestigations.com, uh, located uh, back in Minnesota, who for the last, uh, I would say, six months has been working diligently uh, to attempt to make uh, contact with the uh, with uh, Helen and uh, just try to get uh, get the truth of uh, the actual situation that um, she is has the information on. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact is, um, I was never there. I never did the crime, and and it's, it's just we just really need to get to the bottom of it of what really right. was going well, on. And let's back up to San Diego in 1989. Sure. Okay, so you were you were traveling to pick up some furniture or something? No, I I I, I had gone down to uh, get our items out of storage. Uh, we had been notified that they were going to be uh, going up up for sale or basically just thrown away, and it was all our 
personal family photos and tax records and all other documentations that uh, that were in that storage. You had previously lived in San Diego? Yes, previously I had lived in San Diego, uh, worked for a Honda company down there um, as a uh, factory train master tech uh, engine and training builder uh, for Honda. Okay. So you were driving down there by yourself just to pick up the stuff in storage? That is correct. Okay, and your car broke down? That is correct. And what happened after that? Uh, well, while I was trying to get my transmission to, to function like it's supposed to, um, a police car approached my car. I had, In fact, I had my car full of the storage items. At the time, I was driving a 1979 Honda, Honda Accord, and um, the officer approached and asked what I was doing, and I said, was telling him I was having car trouble. And a uh, 45-minute uh, wait period and, and uh, a request to have my photo taken, um, which I asked the officer, I said, well, is that normal? Which, you know, I mean, I'm 35 years old back then and never had been asked to have my photo taken, so I thought, <laughs> well, this is kind of strange. And he said, well, we can do it here or downtown, and it's like, well, okay. Well, then I'm thinking to myself, well, what choice do I have? I, you know, I mean, I was on my way heading back, uh, you know, back up to the Oregon Coos Bay area, so I thought, well, okay, we'll take my picture then. I have nothing to hide. Okay. So anyway, he took me and uh, put me up against the garage door and took a photo shot of me, and uh, from that point, it uh, pretty much changed my life forever. Okay, then what, ha- then what happened after that? Um, two weeks, uh, approximately two weeks after, I was uh, at my business with my business partner, uh, sitting there having a cup of coffee, and, uh, and a car approached with two men in suits and got out and asked if I was Lusty Waters. And, and uh, so, you, so you were still in, no, you were back in Coos Bay by that time. Oh yes, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, I left, yeah shortly after that that incident, um, I had already had everything packed and ready to go, and and uh, took care of what needed to be done to get my car to operate, and headed back to uh, Coos Bay. Okay, so these two men get out of a car and dressed in suits. What did you think when they they approached you? I had no idea who they were. <laughs> I thought, well, must have a car problem or something. Yeah. And what did they say to you? Um, they wanted to know if I was Glusty Waters, and I responded, yeah, yes, I am. And he said, okay, well, uh, we'd like to talk to you about an incident that occurred down in San Diego. Um, you know, and he wanted to know if I was in San Diego, you know, around uh, the first part of January. And I said, yeah. He says, okay, well, we need to talk to you downtown. And I said, well, all right. And I told my friend Rick, all right, I don't know what's going on, but, you know, I'll let you know. So anyway, I went down there uh, to the uh, police station and, and uh, went into a room, and they slid this piece of paper over across the table to me, and it said, uh, uh, arrest warrant for attempted murder, kidnap, robbery, assault, assault with great intent. And um, I, just, I just turned ghost white and just could absolutely not believe what they were showing me. Hmm. What happened next? Uh, what happens next is uh, they, they started to... Uh, you know, asked me, you know, what was I doing while I was in San Diego and et cetera. And, um, and I gave him a timeline, you know, information uh, of, you know, where I was, what I was doing. I mean, obviously, I had no idea that, you know, any reasons for sitting in front of these two detectives, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it was like just a complete shock to me. I, I was like, you know, I, I didn't understand, you know, who, why they were pointing the finger at me. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it just, before it was all said and done, you know, I was told that I was under arrest for the uh, for the charges, and uh, and at that point, I mean, there's there's uh, more to the story. I can't tell it all in one hour, but um, I ended up uh, being escorted out to a you know a police car, and my my uh, 
you know, my wife and children, you know, they were there, and it was just, it was just a shock. Anyway, I got into the police car, and the, the, the officer that was driving me over to the Coquille County Jail turned, and he looked at me, and he says, he goes, you know who they think you are, don't you? And I said, no, I have no idea. He says, well, they think you're the Green River Killer. And I looked at him, I just looked at him, and I, I mean, I absolutely just was, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, nope. He said, quote, maybe you are, maybe you're not. He said, but you're in it for the long run. And then he just kind of smirked and started driving. And I mean, I just was, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I just like, oh my God, you know, I mean, it's stuff you see on TV. It's stuff you read in the newspaper. Right. You know, it's like, why in the world is, am I being looked at like this mass murdering animal? You know, and it just, it was just unbelievable. So did they transfer you to San Diego right then? Did they, I'm sorry, did they what? Did, did you go to San Diego right then? Um, you know what? I, I absolutely had no reason to hide anything. I hadn't done anything. Um, I had asked for a lie detector test probably 10, 20 times during the interview. Um, I was given one. Uh, the chief of police up there, my wife, had asked him, well, you know, what happened with this lie detector test? And uh, Chief uh, Gilfillan uh, at that time had told my wife, he said, you know, he said he passed that lie detector test. And if, he was, if it was a case up here in Oregon, he wouldn't be, he would, we would let him go. You know, it's not, and I mean, he just reassured my wife, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, but it's not Oregon, it's California. And with California, we got to, you know, follow the rules and regulations of what's supposed to be done. So anyway, I didn't fight extradition at all. I was excited. Let's get down here. Let's figure it out. You know, I mean, it wasn't okay. me. Okay. All right, Sam, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Sam's amazing story. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com.
You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today, Sam Waters is a man that was uh, identified as being the Green River Killer. Of course, he wasn't, we know, because somebody else was arrested and confessed. And Mike Kiger, private investigator in Oregon, who's helping Sam uh, clear his name. Uh, Sam, we were just talking on break that you ha- would like to read a couple of pages out of your book that you think will explain everything succinctly. So go ahead and do that. All right, thank you, Francie. Um, I would just like to remind everyone out there that the title of the book is Wrongly Accused, The Glesty Waters Story. Um, I would also like to add that it's available uh, through Barnes & Noble, um, any of the uh, online book locations. And uh, also, uh, Coin6 News uh, out of Portland spent about a six- to seven-hour interview uh, with Mike Kiger there at at the time of the interview, um, doing doing the story on this this book. And... um, there is a video that is available um, if you go to YouTube and type in Glesty, just G-L-E-S-T-Y, and it should actually kick that video up, which is about five, a little over five minutes, uh, which also kind of gets, gets to the story and the facts of, of what I have going on. But I'd like to read, read the introduction to the book. Um, the doctor uh, that had, uh, was my ghostwriter uh, had helped prepare this, uh, he wa- had the very. He was very fortunate to be able to go through all, if almost all, if not all, the documentations that I had that uh, helped him to do the ghostwriting, and uh, the introduction pretty much spells the story out. And I'll read it here. Okay. This is a true story, my story. It is a life-changing tale of truth and lies, facts and fiction. Mostly, it is about our system of justice and some of its flaws. Perhaps more about some of the people behind it and how, at their whim, your life can be changed as quick as the flash of a reporter's camera. I have lived with this for over 20 years now. I have been warned to let it go for the sake of my physical and emotional health. I was expecting to take the story with me to my grave, but as an isolated incident occurred recently, which made me realize that by keeping my story a secret, I was being selfish and not looking after the interests of my family. Telling the truth now might well affect many people. May its truths reverberate through the system that allowed all this to happen. I was jarred from my complacency in October of 2010 by a call from my grandson, who carries the same name as I, Glesty Donald Waters. He had met a young woman in Southern California. A relationship was in its early stages. Within short order, however, as is common in this information age, the young woman's family had Googled his name, my name, and after 22 years of my story lying dormant, they had stumbled upon the damning story, the history. Their relationship abruptly ended. She wasn't prepared for anything like this, nor was I back in 1989. I did not know that I was about to become a victim of a conspiracy that caught not just me, but so many others in its web. I was about to be framed for the murders of some 40 prostitutes in the San Diego area, as well as being cast as the stand-in for the real killers. You'll read, you'll read the truth of that cover-up and the miscarriage of justice that devoured me, a cover-up that, will, that was fed and nurtured by public officials who were entrusted to serve, protect, and guard our rights. 
I have spent the last 21 years trying to forgive, forget everything that happened to me. The helplessness of being pulled out of the anomaly of a normal life and being thrown into a public spotlight, being accused, tried, and convicted for something I had nothing to do with, or being forced to share my life with some of the most dangerous, heartless killing machines I'd ever thought I'd be in orbit of, of men who freely bragged of their ruthless mis- misadventures of fighting off sleep for the fear of being one of their next victims. And now I have no choice but to relive this nightmare. Tell my story for the sake of my family and friends, for the sake of all those also swallowed up by the beast of justice gone wrong that I have fallen prey to. I have dug out four boxes of documents, evidence, and notes that I collected over the course of my first years out of prison, work that my bleeding hands, heart, and spirit could do to help heal all that has been torn asunder. That's my introduction. Okay, thank you. Very heartfelt. So, um, Sam, let's back up a second, because I think we've got some details that um, people need to know. So you were taken to San Diego. Correct. Um, You stood trial. Correct. Um, You had a court-appointed attorney, a public defender, or what was it? Uh, Yes, I had a court-appointed attorney. A court-appointed attorney. A court-appointed attorney, for those uh, who are listening who may not know, is an attorney that handles a case where the public defender's office has some kind of a conflict. Uh, So it goes to a a panel, typically, that appoints attorneys who handle cases that are, are considered indigent cases. So, all right, so... How long was it from the time you were arrested to the time you went to trial? Well, you know, obviously we're all entitled to what's called a speedy trial. And um, it, uh, as I recall, I believe the trial started uh, right in the area of June. Um, I was arrested and taken to San Diego approximately January 25th. But it was June when the trial actually started. That's actually fairly fairly quick. That's very quick, actually, for uh, such a serious charge. Well, I demanded it. I I absolutely would not sit there as I was encased in a a cell block called 5A with some of the most worst notorious killers in our country, including probably one you're familiar with, uh, Carpenters at Ring a Bell, the trailside killer Mm -hmm. over there in your area. Sure, yeah. You know, and uh, and just, you know, five, six other ones. Alan Buzzard Stevens, uh, Alan Lucas or David Lucas, uh, Prince. Uh, towards the end of my stay there, uh, had shown up. Um, just, just yeah. terrible, terrible people. Okay, so, um, and at the time, there were all these prostitutes in the San Diego area. They were being killed, and they were, and there was a task force that was assigned to pursue the investigations of these murders. Correct. That is correct, and what I was not aware of uh, in the San Diego area was that back in 1984-1985, there was a prostitute by the name of uh, Donna Gentile uh, that uh, was a police informant and had turned uh, evidence against uh, three three detectives, and uh, she um, had gone to, I believe it was a grand jury, and Donna Gentile was the first of 40-plus prostitutes that were murdered in San Diego. And um, it's it's I have an, an actual article pertaining to uh, uh, one of the detectives that uh, believed he was getting close to the uh, to a possible um, police person who may have been involved in that murder. But uh, it was all swept under the carpet. 
But I do have that to read, and it's available. But, and were those murders solved? Were they ever uh, solved? Well, you know, uh, what's, what's funny about that is uh, there was another man who was a mechanic. Gee, isn't it a coincidence? Uh, his name was Ron, Ronald Porter. And uh, eventually, some I think it was seven or eight years later, uh, there was four similar fibers. I don't believe they were actual matched fibers, but four similar fibers uh, somehow, some way surfaced through the FBI uh, seven, eight years later, and uh, that murder was pinned on him. Hmm. Okay. Along with, I guess, as I recall, something like 13 others had similarities uh, that uh, fit his M.O., is the way they put it. And they put to rest uh, some 13 other homicides as just, you know, that it had to be associated with him. I mean, the whole thing, the whole issue down there, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's unbelievably a, a CSI story in it, within itself. It's, it's just an endless array of uh, police corruption. Um, you know, for five years before I arrived down there with these charges and sitting in that jail cell, uh, the task force was already investigating numerous, so something like six to, I believe it was at least six detectives that were tied to possible um, murders of prostitutes in San Diego. Um, you know, I, I got it sitting here right here in front of me. It's from um, uh, the New York Times. It says, paper reports, six officers may be tied to slains. And, uh, you know, th- these are, this and this article is dated, uh, published September 30th, 1990. Okay. Uh, Associated Press, and it gives a full rundown of it. Uh, but the one, that, the one that really, really, I'd like to just mention here, real quick. It said headlines: uh, the San Diego Union headlines slain hookers, targets of conspiracy. And it reads: investigators probing the murders of dozens of prostitutes and drug addicts in San Diego County since 1985. Now remember, this happened to me in 1989. Mm-hmm. So we're talking, you know, four years later are making inquiries about at least three of the victims' possibly roles as police informants. And a detective who once was part of the serial killing investigation says this line of inquiry suggests that others now share a theory he once pursued. Prostitutes were active or acted as police informants were targets of a deadly conspiracy. Gail Moffat, the mother of slain prostitute Diana Moffat, confirmed this week that she had been telephoned within the last week by a Metropolitan Homicide Task Force investigator who wanted to know if her daughter had worked as a police informant before she was killed in 1987. I told him to my knowledge she wasn't, said Moffat in a telephone interview from her home in Portland, or, but I I really don't know anything she did in San Diego, it's possible who informed for and on members of the San Diego Police Department, said yesterday that the task force questioned him last fall about her information activities, whose association with a few police officers led to an internal police department investigation several months before she was murdered in 1985. Cynthia Main, a friend of Gentile's who disappeared in 1986, is the third woman whose informant role is under investigation. Main's family has said that she had a romantic affair with John Fung, a San Diego Police Department detective, and that she acted as an informant for at least two other police officers. Further, in the, mother's, in the months preceding her disappearance, Maines contacted the Department of Internal Affairs Unit, which investigates police wrongdoing. With information about corrupt cops, her family says she had been given sex to cops in exchange for staying out of trouble. Mark Maines said yesterday, he is Cindy's brother and a former San Diego police officer. She couldn't go to the cops. She knew. So she went to the police who police 
who police the police. The Metropolitan Homicide Task Force was formed in 1988 by the Sheriff's Department, Police Department and District Attorney's Office to solve Gentilly's murder and the murder of other prostitutes and drug addicts. The task force mission recently was expanded to include investigating allegations of police misconduct. The relationship of informants to the murders is a line of inquiry that was first forged by a former task force detective, Tom Steed. Steed, an 18-year member of the San Diego Department Homicide Unit, said he investigated the murders and disappearances for almost four years. In 1989, Steed said he was actively pursuing when he was abruptly removed from the task force and branded a maverick. There were similarities in these cases in the sense that other dead prostitutes didn't have the personal relationship with police, and these three did. Steed said this weekend, and now it seems the task force is following up on Streed's ideas. Streed, who will retire from the sheriff's department this month, said he suspected Moffat was someone involved with cops, and that time, and the time he was removed from the task force, Street said he was in the process of trying to substantiate information he picked up on the streets about Moffat and cops. Gentilly's relationship with police officers, however, has been widely documented. Okay, Mark Sam, we, we, need to, we need to take another break. Okay, okay that's fine. Um, PIC Classify will be right back with Sam Waters and Mike Kiger. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. 
That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. The justice system doesn't always work the way we want it to, and Sam Waters is a story that, that certainly highlights that loud and clear. Sam, go ahead. with You wanted to add a couple things from that article. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, comment that uh, I believe that uh, Detective Street was definitely headed down the right path of where it needed to go when he uh, was abruptly removed from the task force and branded a maverick. Um, You know, that has been documented as that was, you know, what happened to him. Anyway, uh, getting into some of the other details, um, you know, Helen Toy, uh, her description of the person that uh, she claimed had assaulted her uh, was a shoulder-length hair individual with a full, full beard, um, and I would like to note that uh, the incident that uh, she claimed had occurred was on January 6th of 1989. Uh, Christmas Eve of 1988, um, I had gone to the barber with my two sons and had uh, a Navy-style haircut done and my beard trimmed extremely close to my face. Uh, so, one, I didn't have shoulder-length hair, and two, I didn't have a full-blown beard. Okay. Um, when the preliminary hearing uh, on February 14th, which was my wedding anniversary, uh, we've been married 40 years, my wife and I, um, uh, she identified me as, well, that's him. Uh, you know, that's him. I recognize his eyes. But his hair that was, was a lot. Wait, that was it. She hadn't identified you prior to the oh, preliminary hearing? Uh, well, we, well, okay, so I do apologize. There was a lineup in this case. So after uh, arriving in San Diego, um, I believe it was a week to two weeks after my arrival, a lineup was prepared. And um, I went up to the lineup area, and uh, the detective came in to the back and uh, told me where to stand in the lineup. Uh, at the, the whole time of this uh, communicating with this detective, I always felt like, well, you know, he's going to help prove my innocence. I mean, I trusted him that, you know, obviously I didn't do anything, and if, you know, if it was going to be figured out, he would be the one to do it. But yet he was in there telling me where to stand and had my clothes changed. Well, it's documented that when I came out of that back room, that uh, my shirt was short and that my stomach was was sticking out. I mean, I wasn't extremely fat, but there was enough of my stomach hanging out that I didn't look the same as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And at that point, she's, oh, it's it's number seven. You know, I mean, it, it's <laughs> so anyway. Um, so you so, so you believe her identification was guided. I do totally. I okay. mean, absolutely, totally. It, it. I mean, I was told where to be at what position, and I was had my clothes changed. And okay. uh, so, anyway, then came the preliminary hearing, and uh, you know, she identified that it was me. But my, you know, my hair was a lot shorter in that courtroom. Well, as I had said, you know, um, I had a haircut uh, that was done uh, Christmas Eve with my two sons. And um, and it, it just goes to show a jury will convict you even if you you know if, if you're bald they'll still put long hair on you. Yeah. So you know it just depends on how well the, the the DA can sell the jury on you know whatever lies that get incorporated into this whole situation. But there, there, there's more facts and, in my thing. Go ahead. Yeah, and Sam, there was no other evidence. I mean, there wasn't any DNA. There wasn't any fingerprints. There wasn't any fibers. Nope. Nope. And if you watch the video, it's very interesting. You know, I, I advise everyone out there to watch that five-minute video because it actually shows the, uh, the, the location where Toy was found. And her, her statement was that the car came to a screeching halt after, after being pushed out of the vehicle. The car comes to a screeching halt. She claims the man gets out and rolls her down, uh, down into this embankment. Now, if you take a note, you'll see a sock 
right there in the dirt area where the sock is. And, uh, and at that time of San Diego, where there was a misty rain going on, which would have made a perfect setting for footprints. Uh, the problem is the only size footprints on that location was a size 7, and I wear a size 12. And she claimed that there was cowboy boots on the person that had assaulted her. And, you know, I mean, I don't know how you're going to walk on, you know, soft shoulder dirt, which you'll see that when you look at the video, uh, you know. And, and also I'd like to note, you don't see the farmhouse that's about 50 yards away. Uh, the farmer said he had heard a, a tire noise or something going on and flipped his light on. His dog was barking like crazy, and then he looked around for a minute or two, didn't see anything, turned the light off and went back to bed. I mean, obviously, if I was a victim, I'd be running to that house to get the protection from the dog or somebody, but uh, that's not the case. That's not what happened. Well, it, and, sounds uh, like, it sounds like, Sam, that you think that she didn't, she wasn't really assaulted. What would be her motive for that? Well, you know, it's kind of funny because as the trial progressed, more and more information and evidence came out. Uh, the night of the preliminary hearing, she was in a motel with a woman by the name of uh, uh, Johnny Mae Witt and the motel manager smoking crack cocaine. While she was there at that evening watching uh, the news and seeing herself on TV, she turned to Johnny Mae Witt and said, he really didn't do that to me, uh, but I'm going to go through with this because uh, the police detectives told me that he's, uh, he's a serial killer and that he needs to pay for all these prostitutes that he murdered. So that was the first we had heard. Uh, this evidence didn't come in until the end of March. Uh, they basically wired Johnny May Witt up, gave her 10 minutes in a restaurant with uh, Helen Toy, and then they immediately put her on an airplane and flew her out of state. And uh, we never got her back in that courtroom at all. Uh, the district attorney was, was blaming, the, uh, blaming my attorney for not requesting, and it went back and forth for two, three months. But the end results were that we never got her in that courtroom. You're talking but about Helen after, Toy or after, Helen Toy or Johnny May Witt? Uh, Johnny Mae Witt. We never okay. got her in that courtroom. But after I was released, I found her. And uh, John Atwell, uh, the investigator that I had from 89 to 93, got a handwritten statement from her at a jail that she was in back in Oklahoma that basically she said that Helen Toy told her uh, that she knew I didn't do this to her and that, uh, and that she was doing this conviction to get me convicted for all the other prostitutes that uh, she was told by the detectives that I had murdered. And I have that handwritten letter. That will be part of the number two book. But okay. it, it goes on. It gets more interesting. Helen Toy, I was charged with robbery. Robbery carries a five-year prison term, I believe, in the state of California. Bonnie DeManis uh, went completely through that trial and tried to convict me of a murder charge. Now, now I had no hang idea. Hang on a second, Sam. Hang on a second. Bonnie DeManis is the district attorney in San Diego that was prosecuting the case. She's now the head district attorney in that county, correct? That is correct. So okay. as, as, as the trial goes on, there... What, what, is, what is facts for the trial is that Helen Toy is assisted by the police uh, in the back of a police car, and then she's put into an ambulance. Once she's in the ambulance, uh, somebody calls in a purse that's located four and a half miles from the location where, this, where the, the incident is. Uh, the purse is brought back on the end of a stick and shown to Helen Toy while she's laying in the ambulance and asks, is this your purse? Helen Toy responds, yes, that's my purse. Well, this is an alligator-type patent leather skin purse, a large purse with a large strap, which would have had fingerprints on it. Uh, the story is that it was never checked for fingerprints because nobody ever requested it. But let's back up a little bit. The first people that arrived at this site uh, that uh, was the two firefighters, Van Biver and Robert Taylor. When they approached, there was no other vehicles there or ambulances or anybody except uh, a Chula Vista police car and a sheriff's officer's car. Helen Toy was placed in the back seat of the sheriff officer's car. 
firefighter Robert Taylor and Van Biber approached the police car, opened the doors, started to work on her. The sheriff reached up on the front seat and picked up a purse, started to open it. Helen Toy, this is in the fireman's reports, which I obtained after my release from prison or jail, uh, states, Van Biber, that, that Helen Toy grabbed the purse from the police officer and would not release it to either of the firemen. She retained that purse all the way through. And, uh, and Robert Taylor... She wouldn't let uh, anybody open it? Nope, she would not let anybody open it. So Robert Taylor, on the stand, I mean, I had no idea that this purse existed. He testifies, tells his story, doesn't mention the purse. Don and I, my wife, after I'm released, we make arrangements to meet with Taylor because I obtained these documents from the actual fire department upon request because I was just searching and, and, and looking because I knew I hadn't done anything. So I obtained these documents, and the document states clearly in there that Helen Toy had possession of a small clutch purse. Van Biber made those statements, and so did uh, Robert Taylor. The policeman reports of Jeff Dean, one of the lead detectives in my case, who is also named by Donna Gentile as one of seven he filed a complaint against before her murder, uh, did, the, did the actual report, police report, no mention of any purse as far as Robert Taylor. So when I contacted Robert Taylor at the, at the Lemon Grove um, fire station, my wife and I sat at a table, slid the document over to him, and I said, can you tell me what you know about this document and that purse? He says, you know, and this was volunteered. He volunteered this information to my wife and I. He said, you know, the funniest thing about this, he said, is I, when I was on the stand, he said, I wanted to know why that purse was so important to her that she wouldn't let go of it while we're working on her. So when I left the courtroom, I was the last witness, and I went outside, and I asked Bonnie DeManis personally. I asked her, why, why was the purse so important to her that she wouldn't let us take it from her while we're trying to work with her? Bonnie DeManis said to Fireman Robert Taylor, quote, well, her teeth were in her purse, and unfortunately, when her, when her teeth were in her mouth, and she gets embarrassed when they're not in her mouth. Well, wait a minute. Let's go back to when uh, she was pushed from the vehicle. Helen Toy testified at the preliminary hearing that her teeth, as she was being choked, uh, and her purse uh, stayed in the vehicle. And, that, and she testified that she'd never seen her teeth again, and that the purse, again, like I said, stayed in the vehicle, and then all of a sudden they say it gets found four and a half miles away, but yet wait. She has possession of a purse when the first arrivers arrive. Yeah. So inconsistencies here is, is very critical. One other thing I'd like to bring, bring out here is the, the Karen Wilkins uh, connection between uh, Karen Wilkins, the other investigator in my case, John Lasardi. These are the two detectives, Jeff Dean and John Lasardi. John Lasardi had connections to Karen Wilkins. Uh, it's in a newspaper article through the San Diego Union where he had a bachelor party where Karen Wilkins and uh, Conan the Barbarian or some uh, prostitute or night dancer or something like that was at a party of his, and he was actually exited off the Metropolitan Homicide Task Force. But later, uh, investigations uh, rein rein got him reinstated, and I believe to this day he is now at the right-hand side of Bonnie DeManis as her advisor. Okay. Uh, but, you know, right. there's enough evidence here that, uh, that needs to be investigated. This big case of, you know, Ron Porter, is he actually the murder of Donna Gentile? I mean, you've got 40-plus dead prostitutes in San Diego and was never handled and, and, and looked at like it was for the uh, Green River killings up in Washington. It's like all been swept under the carpet. Everything's disappeared. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody can find any facts or documents. If you Google the, 
the Union Tribune articles, but I got news for all of them out there. I got everything. I've got six boxes of materials I've held on to for 23 years, including every letter I wrote my wife and the, and the letters that my wife wrote me. Well, I have everything. And, and good for you, Sam. Um, one, one of the things I want to, want to bring out, though, is that when you were convicted, so you were at the, um, the jury... Uh, acquitted you on the attempted murder, correct? Yes, and, and, the, and acquitted me on robbery. And the robbery, but you were convicted on what? Kidnapping, assault, and assault with great intent. Okay. I went on to beat one of the charges of uh, great intent, I believe, uh, with the with the appeal, and um, and um, that's you know I ended up I ended up uh, with the uh, kidnap and the uh, and the assault charge. Okay, but the sentence you got from the judge okay, so is astonishing. All right, here we go. So I'm I'm shaking in my shoes. I'm going I'm going to prison for probably nine years. I'm like ab- I couldn't believe it. Sixty five years is what I was facing. Now I'm facing nine. I absolutely was just unbelievably in shock. So so the judge who can see the things that the jury could not see, he knew things that the jury did not know, and he basically told Bonnie Demanis he gave her direction. Okay that he wanted an independent investigator to interview Helen Toy. Why? Well, because he knew that she was lying and that he wanted the truth before he sentenced me. He also wanted Helen Toy's husband, Lerone Toy, to be, uh, to be in his chambers for a conference with him to get the truth out of Lerone Toy also. See, the problem is my lawyer uh, at the time, his secretary, who was at the preliminary hearing, had, no, had, had, had been friends with Helen Toy. And Helen Toy had confided in her that I didn't do this, and that wow. uh, that her husband had beat her up, and uh, and, the, and and but they were afraid to come into court and testify because they feared uh, retaliation from Lerone Toy. These are actual facts, court documented facts that occurred after my conviction, but none of this came forward. I mean, isn't it ironic that you know I go to my lawyer's office and ask him? You know, well, Catherine X, you know, I want her name. I want to know who she is. This is after I was released. I mean, I'm doing my own investigation work. Also, John Atwell's involved. So my lawyer proceeds to tell me, he says, look, he said, you don't understand how big this is. He said, this is so big. He said that it's like throwing a rock in a birdbath. He said, a lot of people are going to get dirty. You have no idea what you're missing with. He said, you need to stop and you need to stop right now. And uh, I will tell you, I am, I'm not ashamed of it. My wife accidentally had the recording machine on in her purse, and uh, it's not something that I would ever play to anybody, but just it's my wife and I, and that, you know, just the, the, the fact is I never did this crime. Mm-hmm. I believe that when they wrote down, fits the description of the Green River Killer, that that came from the top. I don't believe Officer Norton thought that up. For 45 minutes, they were plotting on the fact that, hey, we got this guy. He's from Oregon. You know what? Cause, because I do know this fact, that they were in communication with the people through the task force when I was being questioned for 45 minutes. So somebody made that decision to write that on that paper. I mean, how many traffic stops are there in our country every day? Yeah. Okay, yeah. there's only one Green River killer. Why was I chosen to be fits the description of the Green River Killer. I, I didn't fit any description of him. I don't look really, if you really look at it, that picture they show on the interview is from 1975. Yeah. You know, so, but, and they, and hey, uh, Francie, they did not have a description of the Green River Killer in 1989. They had no idea what he looked like or who he was. Well, Francie, Sam didn't mention also that when he was sentenced, the judge 
um, basically, because he was facing nine years at that time, then um, Sam can step in on this, but basically the judge uh, gave him one year uh, and equal that to time served because he didn't believe what, what was being promoted. Yeah, and, didn't, he say, didn't he say that he didn't believe Helen Toy? And did you, did you testify, Sam? You know, absolutely, I did testify. And uh, the, problem, the problem is, is that I did testify, and then my lawyer came to me and he said, look, he said, they, they found the witness, he said, they found the witness, he said, and we want to protect your, uh, you know, like, you know, I mean, okay, I, I'm not going to say I've never, you know, smoked marijuana and, and not inhaled, okay, I mean, I'm not Mr. Perfect. But, you know, I was not some strung out, needle pushing, you know, cracks. I mean, I've smoked crack in my life. I'm not going to deny it, okay? But, you know, he was trying to use the phrase, well, I'm going to protect your credibility. Well, so he had me sign this document that said, you know, for me not to testify. Well, unfortunately, I don't know the rules and regulations. I'm locked down in a cage for 23 hours a day. I'm out one hour in the evenings, and I get a lawyer visit when he decides to come see me. So I'm not in control of anything. So I went with his advice and not to, not to get back on the stand and counteract or, or, you know, go against what they were saying. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it made me look like I was a liar. And, you know, and I, and I actually did lie. I will, I will totally admit that. It's in the book. I had to lie. And, you know, but what, what is, I lied what about. What did you lie about? Okay, well, as I'm sitting here, and how many minutes more do I have? Not very many. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Francie, well let, me, let, me, let me say it like this. Let me say it like this. They, they told me, and I have the documents, that there was matching fibers. And it turns out there was absolutely no matching fibers whatsoever. But they were trying to get me to take a deal. They wanted me to do a 15-year deal on this thing. And I refused. I said, absolutely not. And he says, well, look, you need to give me something I can sell. They've got matching fibers. How did she get matching? How did they get matching fibers on her clothes if, if it's not true? And I'm like, okay. Well, then it's obvious that they're trying to, that it's a conspiracy to get me convicted no matter what it's going to take to do it. I said, because I was never there. It never happened. So they're lying. I says, all right, I'll give you a story you can sell. So basically, the story I gave him was that I had run into Helen Toy uh, on a street over in Reynolds area and that she got in my car, tried to sell me some dope, sat down in my car, and I refused, get out of my car, goodbye, I don't want it, you know. And then I drove away. So that, so that would put her in my car, able to get fibers on her. So that was the story. Now, <laughs> it's ironic because when they stopped me, when they first stopped me, and the cops first questioned me when I was having car trouble, I had been over visiting uh, a family that I know like three or four blocks away. And uh, a lady by the name of Grace Hutchinson, had, I had given her a ride over to that location where my car broke down. So when the cops asked me, well, what are you doing? Well, I just, you know, this lady hitched a ride. I gave her a ride, but my car's giving me a problem. So that woman, okay, that I had given the ride to, I didn't know her name because I'd never really had real communication with her. But I knew her brother and her family real well, you know, all the guys in the family. But I didn't know her personally, so I really didn't know her name. So when they asked, well, what, well you know, what's her name? Well, I don't know her name. So, so here I'm a guy with Oregon plates. I'm giving this, you know, black lady a ride, and... Um, you know, so now it's, now it's, okay, well, look, this guy's suspicious. You know, let's put this label on him. So the next thing I know, that's when they pulled me in there, and, I, and, and what I lied about was the fact that Helen Toy was in my Honda car. Mm-hmm. Not, not some bogus station wagon, which has its own stories, which uh, Mike Kiger has just recently, last month or two, uh, discovered brand new evidence dealing with a, with, a, with a supposed station wagon that was used. Okay. So, you know, but, hey, in the end, you know what, judge, call me a liar. But you already know Helen Toy was busted on the stand lying numerous times, not just once, but a bunch of times. So he just basically said, I want, I want to get the truth out of Helen Toy before I, before I sentence Mr. Waters. And uh, he had ordered the judge 
to get somebody to sit down with Helen Toy and get the truth. But you have to understand, this, this was a real-life conspiracy. Okay, what is amazing, Sam, I mean, yes. for, for people out there that have either been involved in uh, criminal defense, um, the justice system have been uh, either personally or a family member or people that work on the cases, you got... You had been in jail for a year by the time you were sentenced. You got time served for that year. You were put on five-year probation, and you walked out that day. I walked right. out that day, and both the detectives, Jeff Dean and John Lasardi, were waiting outside around the corner just staring. It was like they couldn't believe it. Well, I mean, there's more to this. this well, I can tell you that that sentence is astonishing. Well, the whole story was astonishing of what, how it all happened and came together. And there is, there is conspiracy here. It is bigger than you and I and probably everybody else, and it needs to come out. And the Rolodex 500, that Rolodex, Karen Wilkins, Donna Gentile was tied right to her. Bonnie DeManis has control of that Rolodex and even exercised statements about it against attorney Alan Bloom, who, is, who got, um, let's see, uh, Cynthia Summers. I don't know if a lot okay, of you out there you're know who she is. Of, you're mentioning a lot of names that we don't know who they are. What's the well, look up, look up Bonnie DeManis, Cynthia Summers' lawsuit. Okay. Read it. Okay. All and right. You'll be astonished on that. And the and Rolodex is? That, a deposition was done to Bonnie DeManis. She mentions the Rolodex. The Rolodex contained 500 names of high-profile people. And it sat in the police station once it was uh, confiscated, uh, because all of it was wrapped around the Donna Gentile murder. Okay. And once it was confiscated, it was left sitting. This, these are articles that I have access to, uh, where the Rolodex was left sitting in the police department for days on end, just so people could basically get their names out of it, is what the newspaper says. But in the end, it ended up with Bonnie DeManis, everything a secret, nobody's going to talk about anything, all the cops that were accused, everything got brushed under the carpet, when you, when you look at backgrounds, like, I don't know, if I remember right, I think a month ago I was glancing at Bonnie DeManis' run for mayor and discussions about her accomplishments. I don't think you're going to see anything in there about her being all tied up to all this task force stuff because it's a bad time. Okay. Well, and the thing that you really would like to do is have somebody talk to Helen Toy. Yes, we are trying she, to get to Helen Toy. Yeah, and at this point she's refused to talk to you. Not, not to me personally. She just, so I think she's afraid. I think she's afraid of really, you know, what, she doesn't really know what's going on. They only left her with this. She came in and testified. They convinced her I was a serial killer. And, and uh, Elizabeth out of Hillsboro made one contact call on the phone. And basically she, she made the statement, uh, the fact that uh, the serial killer, he got what he had coming. She doesn't really know what really, really, really happened. Okay. She has no idea that I walked out of the courtroom. No. Right. Well, Francie, right. there's, there's two points that really need to be brought up and be made. Uh, when when Sam was sentenced, he was he was in jail for a year. He was given time sentence of one year and probation. He was told he the judge told Bonnie Demanis, Mr. Waters is leaving the court today. He also looked at Bonnie Demanis and at Man at, um, and basically stated on the court record, looking at her directly, and said, "You got the Green River Killer in your eyes, and you never let it go." And that's exactly not, right. This is not the Green River Killer. And the other thing of it is, is that uh, Lerone Toy, which is Helen Toy's husband, has been located. He has given me a small sample of information that he has. He has indicated he has more information, but at this point in time, he has been reluctant to release us to us or to come forth and tell the truth of what he actually knows. Okay, guys, we got to go. This is an amazing story. Uh, 
I know people out there are are captivated by hearing all this. Name the name the name of your book again, Sam. It's uh, the, the the title of the book is Wrongly Accused: The Glesty Water Story. And, on Amazon. Um, it's on Amazon. It's, it, it's on all the books. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, it's it's pretty much uh, spreading everywhere. But the okay. video, the video, if you watch that, will really give it right. to you. Hey, one thing before you go, we I just want to say thank you to everybody that are investigators. You guys work for God because I'll tell you what, without you, <laughs> we're all guilty. All right. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Mike. Yep. Again, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PI's Declassifying, Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Mike. Uh, amazing story. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.